Welcome to episode six of the On The Way podcast, uh, a podcast dedicated to a compassionate, uh, non-dualistic view of the Christian faith. Uh, joining me on the podcast today are our two regulars back in the same room, uh, the very Reverend Dr. Peter Cat and Sue Elton. Welcome back, Peter and Sue. Good Thank to be you. Here. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, our special guest today is Reverend Dr. Gregory Jenks, uh, a religious scholar and Dean Elect of Christ Church Cathedral in Grafton. Thanks for joining us, Greg. You're welcome. My pleasure. Um, just before you moved down to Grafton, we've we've snuck in and got you for a podcast just before the move. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so, Greg, just uh, we, we today we are going to talk about the Bible and I guess how to read the Bible. What is the Bible? Um, which is quite a big uh, topic for us to tackle. But uh, I just thought, you know, we, we've discussed Sue and Peter's backgrounds quite extensively on the podcast and, and, you know, their studies and their experience. Can you give us a brief background, I guess, of, of your uh, background and your experience in, in this area? Sure. Well, I've spent most of my working life as a biblical scholar, teaching at seminaries like St. Francis here in Brisbane, St. Barnabas in Adelaide and so on just back from being Dean of St. George's College in Jerusalem. Uh, my earlier background was that I was raised in the Church of Christ in the Northern Rivers of New South Wales, so very conservative, Bible-centered kind of upbringing, which means I have a legacy of knowing the Bible really well, but it's also meant I've spent the rest of my life um, sort of, I guess, deprogramming mm. and coming to a different understanding of Scripture. It might be a good place to start uh, in terms of the history of the Bible, just how we got this book uh, or these, this collection of books, how we got this library that is now um, the, the centerpiece of the Christian religion. Um, Greg, I might get you just to speak on that, on, on how this book, this library, sorry, came to be. Yeah, well, uh, the first thing is that it is, it is literature. It's a, in our experience, it's mostly a book or a pro, or these days an app on our phone. Um it's, of course, as you hinted, it's more than a book. It's a collection of documents, but we normally experience it as one bound volume. But that tells us straight away it's been created by human beings. It uses language and it uses technology of writing and eventually printing in order to create this artifact. So one simple way of, I guess, uh, indicating the complexity where it comes from is to think, well, Abraham could never, Abraham would never have seen a book. Abraham lived in a non-lit. If Abraham existed, he would have. People of that period lived in a pre-literate or non-literate culture. Mm. So there were. So all of these traditions, wherever they come from, at some point, somebody writes them down. And for that, you need the invention of writing. You need the invention of the alphabet, which came from ancient Canaan, and you need the technology to record and preserve and transmit these texts. So it's a complex story. They didn't drop out of heaven one Easter. Which is uh, often how they are uh, treated, I think, by, by many yeah. people. Um, yeah. wh why do you think, Peter, we've come to treat the Bible, or, or, or large percentages maybe of the Christian religion have come to treat the Bible as this law book, as this rule book, rather than, um, I guess, the complexity that it holds? I think that's a really key question, Dom. Um I think uh, that people, not just Christians, I think people search for certainty and expressions of certainty. And having a book that you can hold in your hand gives you a whole heap of certainty. And especially, you know, we're, in terms of dealing with God, we're dealing with something that is basically an incredible mystery, is always beyond us. 
uh, it is always a challenge to us if we can somehow uh, subvert God and refer to a book rather than something that is living and is challenging us to be something other than we already are. And a book is a really handy thing to have because you can refer to the book. Um, the book doesn't um, the book doesn't comment back. So if we choose to use the book in a particular way, we have that internal vindication. So if we look in the book and find something that supports our view on a particular matter or challenges our view on a particular matter, then it's only us having that dialogue with the book. We're not dialoguing with the, the living God. The living God scares, scares us. Uh, the Bible itself records the fact that people have always had that sense of being quite frightened of the living God. And so one of the ways to subvert that fear is to refer to the book. And in the process, we divinize the book. We turn it into God. And a God that you can hold in your hand and contain, whilst it is an idol, is a very comfortable God. Mm. It gives us incredible comfort to be able to say, this is God. This is what God looks like. God tells me these things through this book. And one can look past all the contradictions that the book contains and get a real beautiful sense of certainty. Uh, so we, we have chatted before on the podcast that you have made your way through a number of different uh, Christian traditions and, and churches. Um, I imagine you would have seen the Bible handled in many different ways on that journey. Yeah, we're talking about the Bible as a book as something safe, something we can contain. It's certainly the way I've experienced it used, uh, you know, the, the guidebook for living idea. You even have Bibles that have a, a special index for where to go if you're confused, where to go if you're encountering unforgiveness. You know, just just pop over to that page and the answers will all be there. And, and that approach to the Bible as something um, fixed, something that, you know, you can use it as a ready reference tool for living, you know, uh, is very convenient and very safe and doesn't actually challenge you, doesn't take you on the kind of deep soul work mm. that scripture, I believe, is meant to take us on. There's a lot of ministries out there who will raise funds to purchase Bibles to give to people. And those Bibles are often handed out maybe with a, you know, a prayer maybe with a, a good luck or something like that but very rarely with uh, any unpacking any context of what it is that they're handing over um, which I think is why this context is so important and I think it might be good to, to actually uh, answer quite in a, in a summary type way the question what is the Bible and I'd be interested to know I'll start with you Sue what in you, and I know that this is a big question to just throw at you but but if you, if somebody who didn't know the Christian faith, you were giving them a Bible and they said, what's this book? What would you say? What is the Bible? I would say it's um, the story of God's encounter with humanity and humanity's relationship to God and the struggle um, and the uncertainty and the mystery that goes with all of that, that it's a, a collection of books that tells that story in different ways, in poetry, in, in what looks like like historical account, in, um, you know, in, in dialogue and, and just so many stories that unpack what it means to be human. Do you have a, a, a definition, Greg, of what you would say? What is the Bible? For me, it... it there are lots of definitions, but for me it's one of the ways, and the reason it's so central, it's one of the ways we connect with the past so our community is not just the people in the room with us, but the Bible it gives us access to what other people have thought 
other people have tried to do, what's worked for them in their context, what hasn't worked for them. And all of that is the matrix out of which our faith has emerged. We have to engage with a different world than they were in. But we, we keep going back to the Bible because that's our roots and that's where our basic theological, spiritual wisdom is to be found uh, with the good wisdom and the bad wisdom, as it were, the wisdom about bad choices as well as mm. inspired choices almost. And then we take that wisdom and together we try to make it real in our context. So, so to me, that's why the Bible is so essential not because it has all the answers. It's not like, for me, the Bible's not a book of answers to life's exams, life's questions. It's a set of past exam papers. <laughs> <laughs> and some students failed. That is uh, one of the best definitions I think I've heard. I love that. Um, I'm going to slightly change the question to throw it at you, Peter. I've asked uh, Sir and Greg, what is the Bible? I want to ask you, what is the Bible not? What is the Bible not? It's, it's uh, certainly not many things. It is not many things. Um, mm. It certainly is not a rule book. It is certainly not the last word on anything. Uh, and, it is, and it is not consistent. <laughs> so it can't be the final. It, uh, the thing I love about the scriptures is, one of the things I love about the scriptures is the diversity of material that's in it. And the fact that it's full of paradoxes and complexities, and in that way, it's not simple. I, I find it uh, fascinating that you know you use the word um, paradoxes. Um, a militant atheist might use the word blatant contradictions. Well, what's the the difference there in your eyes? Um, the difference there is a is a paradox is is. Um, is a is a, a device that opens up a space between two definites and invites us to it opens a space for us to explore and so the paradox is one of the greatest gifts we can encounter in life because it usually shakes us out of our certainties mm. and um, it's one of the great gifts that can come our way in politics it's one of the great gifts that can come our way in relationships it's one of the great gifts that can come our way in all sorts of places, that the paradox, if we understand it as a paradox, we stand before it unable to control, having to be vulnerable, and understanding that there's a space between the two poles which looks quite dark and foreboding, but that's where life is to be found not by resolving necessarily the paradox, but entering into the space it opens. Um, Greg, when I was reading up uh, online, I found one of your messages from earlier in the year, and you, you were stressing in this message the importance of context when it comes to reading the Bible. And I've heard that before, but, but I've always heard it said the context with which the Bible was written. However, you also added two extra elements of context, um, the, the context in which we hear the passage and the context of our own lives when hearing it. Can you just uh, talk on that briefly? Sure. Well, like um, like anything we read, uh, and, and this comes out of sort of contemporary theories of you know, communication and texts and so on, but because the Bible is a text, sure, the authors would have had some purpose in mind. Um, but we hear it, and we hear it often in a particular context on a Sunday morning alongside two or three other readings or two or three other hymns and things that are going on. And that puts a frame of reference around the text and can influence how we understand it. 
and engage with it. But we also we also hear it in our lived experience. So if we're a, a woman who's just experienced domestic violence and the reading that morning happens to be uh, uh, a text which is saying women should submit to their husbands and so on, then that lived experience of the violence uh, before she came to church is going to intersect with this text. It may challenge her uh, to submit or it may be that she'll, her life experience will challenge the text and say, that's not a life-giving word from God for me in my life. Mm. So her context will change the significance, what the Bible signifies will be well, has to has to act in some sort of catalyst with the circumstances of the hearer, of the reader. What you're you're talking about is quite a dynamic process. Something that's moving, that's changing, that that is um, experienced differently uh, mm. in different contexts. However, it's often uh, I think treated and viewed as quite a static, um, you know, unchanging. In fact, I know the tradition I grew up in. There was a concept that God's word is unchangeable, unchanging. It, it is what it is, what it has always been. Um, how do you think it's gotten to the stage where we want to view it as static? Why, why is that the case? Uh, it's partly that we really don't read the Bible. We look at the Bible through the lens of the church's faith. And the church has already told us in Sunday school, in our home spiritual nurture, in sermons, and in the prayer book, in the liturgy, the church tells us what this passage is going to mean. And mm. so we, we look at the Bible, we listen to the text, but we're really, we're really engaging with the faith of the church and the Bible is, is one of the elements of that whole process. But it's interesting when we let the Bible loose within the life of the church and it actually starts to challenge and, pro- and, and um, provoke or undermine or subvert some of the assumptions of the theological framework we've built around it. Um. When I was uh, researching for this podcast, I, I kept coming across essentially three, and I, this might be simplifying it, but three approaches to reading the Bible. The first, which is embracing the text exactly as it seems to be, um, taking it all as, as literal truth. The second is largely ignoring the text or cherry picking the, the bits that work and ignoring the bits that don't. Um, and the, the third was wrestling with interpretations of the text to try to find a way that it, it works. And uh, I remember, Peter, you were speaking recently um, at the cathedral uh, about quite a difficult verse, um, which is the, the one about, I think it's uh, children will turn on their parents, or is it sons will turn on their fathers, that verse. And you mentioned, you and I were having a conversation after the, the service, and you mentioned that some wrestling had to be done with a verse like that. Yes, and I think I think the Bible itself attests to that's what Scripture's about. I, mean, I, I think the Scriptures really record people wrestling with the whole idea of God and what God wants of them, uh, sometimes producing wonderful results, other times producing disastrous results. Mm. And I think I think the whole point of engaging with Scripture is for us to wrestle with it, for it to. To, for us to face the verses that we don't like, which is one of the strengths of the way the church uses the Bible, that we have a lectionary which which puts readings before us, and on a particular Sunday, if you're the preacher, you have to wrestle with that text, you have to have to 
uh, allow texts that you would rather not have read be read and then um, engage with them or ignore them or um, pro get provoked by them and so yes I think I think that's the whole process is is engaging with the text being able to say well I don't like that um, now that I don't like it what am I going to do with it um, how am I going to find a living word beyond the word because that's you know, at the heart of the Christian faith is the idea that Jesus is the word of God not the Bible and that if, if, if the Bible is going to be of any use to us at all we have to use it more of a, as an icon and see through it to the living word and that living word is something we can't hold something we can't contain something we can't control and is always going to challenge us. And so wrestling with the text is one of the ways that we engage in that process. Well, so I know that you, uh, on the, the third podcast of this series, um, spoke about your challenges with certain parts of, of the church who would quote verses as perhaps a reason why you would not be able to be a minister, why women should not be involved in ministry. And uh, sometimes I think most people would know that, that that feeling of when you're arguing against somebody who is whose only statement, their only argument is, well, the Bible says it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, those difficult verses where they won't delve deeper, they will just give you their base reading of it. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that? How do you actually deal with, a, a, I guess, largely a religion that doesn't want to delve deeper? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you, you do come up against a brick wall there a bit because people don't understand, um, they're not really understanding scripture and and how, how it's been used. And, and like even looking at, at the way, you know, why we would think of it as a fixed point when we have Jesus who comes along and actually says quite often, you have heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus reinterprets scripture. Mm. Um, St. Paul was quite creative really just grabbing passages from Isaiah and, and, and plopping them in and, and reinterpreting them quite creatively. It is difficult to imagine why we have has such a fixed view when Jesus himself did not carry that view. He, he was and it wasn't cherry picking it was choosing actually following the trajectory of of scripture which is always a revealing of God's love for all creation and a, and a greater love and how do we live into that love um, when Jesus starts to, when Jesus chooses passages and and, um, and highlights them or says, "But I say to you," he is is following up and saying, "This is this is the way I'm living out this way," um, and and he does he does you know take that passage but um, give it a new life in his own context. I mean, when he um, that very classic when he starts his ministry. Um, it's in Luke 4 um, with that you know, unrolls the scroll and says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because um, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor release to the captives recovery of sight to blind let the oppressed go free he actually leaves out that's a reference from Isaiah but he leaves out the next verse which says um, and the day of vengeance of our God he just drops that you know <laughs> and um, apparently you know Jesus is, is free to do that and yet somehow we've taken on ourselves a view that that this is fixed and static. Greg, I thought uh, something you sent through via email in preparation was your Bible six-pack, um, which is six points you have uh, on the Bible. And I'd just love you uh, to, to go through them uh, briefly if you, if you could because I think reading through them, I found them fascinating and I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on them. Okay, well, let me just introduce it by saying even the challenge of 
if you're asked to say the four most important things or the five most important things or the ten most important things, your list is going to be different. Mm. Like if I had to drop one of these out, it would be a different list. I'd have to start from scratch if I could only have five. So again, the lens of the context and the the genre is the back. The other background here is that it's the idea of the six pack, which Aussies will take to a picnic. And a friend of mine, who's actually a friend of ours, um, a priest in the diocese, rang me one Sunday and said, "I'm speaking at a men's group later on. I want to use the metaphor of the six pack. Can you tell me the six most important things about the Bible that I might use as a talking point?" So that's where it came from. Right. It was okay. scribbled down one late one Sunday afternoon and emailed off. Um, and I've kept using it ever since. Well, so, so we're sitting at the picnic, Greg. Yeah, we're at the picnic. <laughs> Crack out the six. So packs. the six, what have we are, got? just without any commentary on them. First one is the Bible is mostly written by ancient Jews. It's not a Christian text. Okay. Mm. Sorry, no commentary. Um, secondly, <laughs> <laughs> most of the Bible was prepared for oral presentation via live performance in a gathered community, who were there for liturgy and meal, not for close word by word, phrase by phrase analysis by highly literate Westerners. Third one is that the Bible has very little to do with history, even though there are some historical elements embedded in it. Fourth one was that the decision on which text to include in the Bible were mostly determined by the political needs of the Jewish communities in the early Hellenistic period after Alexander the Great and by emerging Christian, um, emerging Catholic Christianity in the third and fourth century. That's when the canon as we say, is closed. The fifth one was that when the, while the Bible has been used to validate prejudice and oppression of various kinds, it can also be used in ways that enhance humanity and um, encourage respect for the planet. And the final one was that don't do this at home by yourself. You know, the Bible is best read in the company of other people so that we benefit from their wisdom as together we wrestle struggle to discern what is the spirit saying to us as we read these texts mm. so that was my take a few years ago now if i had to say six things about the bible what would they be it's interesting because a few of those understandings would be new understandings for a lot of people might actually contradict certain understandings that that, that many people have long held about the bible that's the whole point <laughs> why, why do you think we've but why do you think we've gathered so many misconceptions why do you think it's it is so thoroughly misunderstood as, as what it is in terms of its, its origins. I'll go back to Peter's point. The, the way the Bible functions for most people in the Western world is as, a, as an instrument of theological control because not only does it give certainty, but it gives power to the, to the religious leaders, whether they be your Baptist pastor or a Catholic bishop, whatever, anywhere in between, they all want to say the Bible says and so there's nothing more to say about it. Mm. But it's actually, it's my reading of the Bible says. And there's lots of things to say about that. And I come back to Greg's point uh, that, that it has to be uh, writ, uh, read and heard in community. Um, I, think the in, I think the push to individualism in, is one of the scourges of our time. And we've lost the fact that we do we become we become who we are through community and in community, and to use the scriptures in that sort of isolated and isolating way, and and communities do the same. We are we are really in a we should be really in a in a huge conversation and dialogue with the world, inverted commas, with other communities and other people, and the Bible 
can be part of that conversation. But the, the idea of just having it in anyone's hands and any individual is, is corrupting. Mm-hmm. And you know the the Bible works for me and only works for me because I've discovered a community in which to explore its depths. Mm-hmm. When I was when I was outside of the church and people kept on quoting Bible at me and I had a copy of the Bible given to me by some people who came to my school, um, it it was of no use to me at all, really. And it, all it did was. Uh, uh, encouraged me to be an atheist and and it confirmed my atheism because you know the opening the opening verses of the bible are contrary to my understanding as a scientist of the way the world came to be and so you know that that opening text for me was a problem mm. but in community when i when i went to theological college particularly uh, and and explored the depths of the scriptures that verse or that that first chapter of Genesis became one of the most precious things for me and now it's one of my favorite scriptures mm. the very scripture that kept me outside the church through exploring in community has become one of the richest texts I know mm. and so I think the whole individual thing is, is actually the problem and and no one by themselves is equipped to engage in life, let alone engage with the Bible. We have to do it as a community. I, I know, Sue, that on the the fourth podcast of this series with uh, Dave Andrews and Nora Ameth, uh, you shared how there were some uh, some bits of scripture that you read in your, your younger years and assumed as, as maybe fact or, or just read them in a certain way and then came back to those same verses some years later and had an entirely... Well, polar opposite reading of of them, and and uh, I think the phrase you used was was you were shocked at how you could have missed mm-hmm. some of mm. this stuff that was in there. Mm. Um, do you find that that even you know now, even after many years working in the church, that that there's still new things being revealed through this text that you've been reading your whole life? Oh, always, you know, and that's we we talk about it as as, as living word, and and that's what scripture does. It interrogates us as much as 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 we you know, seek to find answers there. And, and in that relationship, as you're reading, you know, often something new will stand out. And that comes about in community, in dialogue with others, that other people can prompt something and then you go back to scripture and it opens up something entirely new because of the dynamic of that relationship that's been happening. And uh, here I think, I mean, it speaks to the idea of paradox and or contradiction that people see you know, I had someone bail me up once who said, you know, I want to sit you down and point out all the contradictions in the Bible. Well, yes. Yeah, there are. There's lots, you know. Um, I, I don't know yet. <laughs> and, you know, I think that comes from an, uh, a, a strange kind of thinking where we think inerrancy, infallibility is is the highest goal. And Rob Bell uh, tells this story in his, in his latest book and he says that why, why did we think that infallibility or inerrancy is the most important or, the, you know, the, the most wonderful thing to aspire to when we don't aspire to that in relationships? You don't say, I'm having a wonderful relationship with someone, it's completely infallible. You know, you don't look at a sunset and go, what an inerrant sunset. You know, there's no mistakes in that one. It must be great. <laughs> you know, so why we've got this idea that scripture needs to be infallible, inerrant, I have no idea. I guess it's uh, it, it, this is actually tying back to almost all the podcasts we've already done. Yes. And the last one, uh, Peter, about science and faith, where we dealt with the nature of truth. And, and you spoke at, at length about um, how just going with literal truth misses so much. 
And I, I assume that's, that's clear nowhere more than, uh, no more uh, evidently than with the reading of the Bible. Uh, absolutely. And I guess it's important historically to realize that reading the Bible in that way is a very recent phenomenon. It really is a product of the scientific paradigm where we decided that facts equal history and truth equals facts and so on. Whereas the, the ancients, you know, the, the tradition of the church was to read the Bible in a, through a number, of, a number of lenses. So to certainly look for the literal truth, but also to look for metaphor and analogy and, and spiritual readings and to come to the text expecting it to speak to one in different ways and for truth to be revealed in different ways. It's really only since the mid-1800s that we've had this idea that you, that facts matter in, and that, that the truth is only determined through facts. And we've lost that, well, in terms of our approach to the Bible often, we've lost that idea that truth is revealed through story, uh, truth is revealed through poetry, truth is revealed through imagery, uh, and truth is a complex thing. And we get that insight in all sorts of different ways. And it's just really helpful, I think, to remind ourselves that that um, reading, literal reading, is actually a modern phenomenon. It's a product of, of the Bible being written down and printed and freely available, but also because the scientific paradigm was beginning to push for certainty. One of the things science does is, is seek for seek, well, simplistic approach to science seeks for certainty, whereas science at its best is really open to ambiguity and for goodness sake we live in a quantum universe and a quantum universe is to do with uncertainty principles and, and, and probabilities and if nothing else the science now is saying to us don't be certain about stuff in that sort of deliberate way it's, it's saying the world, the world is really quite wacky and the universe is really quite strange and if the universe is strange and the world is quite wacky then God's going to be quite wacky and strange and untangible and mysterious as well and and we're actually learning that so are we we are complex we are very complex creatures and so our faith needs to be engaged with complexity not certainty Greg, as a biblical scholar, you, you would have many people who've come into classrooms, who've, who've come into workshops with you um, with a certain understanding of the Bible, um, at which you may have challenged at times, you may have, have prodded, you may have, have altered. Um, I, I guess what I'm interested in is when I hear the term, and I think many people would feel the same, when you hear the term biblical scholar, you think mm -hmm. somebody who knows the Bible, knows what it says, um, can, give, can give the answers even, is the way that your yeah. mind wants to work. Uh, but but I imagine for you it's it's that's not the case at all. It's not about knowing the answers. It's something quite different to that. Of course, I have the answers. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell them to you for a small price. <laughs> no, I mean th again, it's this the problem of language because if we like we we wouldn't see an art critic as having the final word on the meaning of the art of a of an individual piece of art, mm. but we would appreciate their wisdom and their experience with the genre and their knowledge of the canon of relevant pieces of work and we wouldn't take their their word as definitive because we'd recognize that it's it's open-ended it's it's multi-nuanced and so on it's, it's multivalent so it would be better to say i'm a biblical critic but that's a loaded term as well because what do you mean you can't criticize the bible 
Well, we don't think that an art critic is necessarily criticizing the artist or the art, but but when it comes to the Bible, you can't have criticism. And there was a conflict about 120 years ago about so-called higher criticism and lower criticism, and that's where we got the origins of Christian fundamentalism with the uh, the, the movement in the, eight, the 1890s, early early 1900s, rejecting European, German, critical biblical scholarship and and rejecting and moving to an anti-intellectual position where a simplistic view of the Bible was the answer to all life's problems. And and the church, and many forms of the church, have been stuck there ever since. I know a friend of mine who fell out of uh, his church. His main reason was because of the lack of critical thinking. He said, there's no critical thinking in this place. We're all just following yeah. what the pastor says is the only way you can interpret things. Yeah, that's fine in my church, but... <laughs> <laughs> so I imagine often, Greg, for you, it's it's about uh, breaking down misconceptions, breaking down, I guess, previous understandings maybe? or, or what, what? I What I most enjoy is seeing other people find their own capacity to engage with Scripture mm. and becoming uh, autonomous readers, interpreters, engagers, wrestlers with scripture. And then I can stand back and any whether I agree so when I was marking assignments, I wasn't looking, believe it or not, Sue, for people <laughs> who agreed with me, that was pretty rare. Um, but I was looking for people who'd learned how to think for themselves. And if I could teach people to think for themselves with respect to scripture, then my job as a Bible scholar, Bible critic, is done. I remember having this conversation with somebody once and they quoted me after I uh, said that, you know, I, I had a different view on, on one piece of scripture to them. They quoted, I think it was Ephesians four sixteen or 17, which is the instructions for Christian living. And they quoted the, the bit about the Gentiles being lost to the futility of their thinking. And that to them was a dismissal of the need for critical thinking. Their belief was yeah. it's all already there for us. We'd be, we're told not to be lost to our thinking. And I think that is a belief uh, large percentages yeah. of the church would have. But what if that bit of the Bible is wrong? <laughs> the fact that it's in the Bible doesn't guarantee it's correct, but it's an invitation to say, would we buy that? And mm. in what circumstances would that be gospel truth for us? And in what circumstances is that an evasion of gospel truth? And Ephesians, A, it's not Paul, okay, not that he's perfect, but it represents a second, third generation of Christianity where the Jesus movement is going more conservative. So th th like an archaeological tell, the Bible has layers. Mm. And biblical literacy is about learning to read the different layers and hear the different voices and then stand back and together say, well, what is God saying to us? Not what is the Bible saying to it, what is God saying to us? The Bible is part of that conversation, but it's not the only voice. It's not God's broadcast to humanity. Um, Rob Bell has recently published a book, What is the Bible?, which uh, has become uh, quite popular in recent months. And he uh, deals with good and bad questions to ask when reading the Bible. And one of the good questions he says is, why did people think it was important to tell this story? What, what was it about their shifting, changing understanding of the divine that made them pass this story down? And, and what can we see in that? And um, in one of them, he, he touches on Noah's Ark, Peter, which is a story you and I were chatting about not too long ago. Because I, I think I, I might have told you that a friend of mine was reading Noah's Ark to their, their young child in one of the children's Bibles. And 
the kid was terrified at the end and the father was like, why are you scared? It's, you know, it's a great news story. And the kid said, but God sent the flood in the first place. <laughs> and it's like, it, it was quite hard for this kid to understand this notion of a God who, oh, so he's not going to do it now, but he, he did it once. Peter, that, that concept of shifting understandings of God, how, how could you read Noah's Ark differently? Um, differently to the way the kid, I think the kid had a good reading of the, of the <laughs> Noah's Ark story. I mean, I, I think, I think many of the the stories in um, the Bible are, are texts of terror, really, and mm. and and Noah's Ark is a terrifying story. Um, I have it, and it's it's it the the sequels are just as horrendous. I mean, you know, Noah's Ark there's incest happens just after the after they get off the ark. I mean, it, it's it's for me, it's a a, a story full of that pr- promotes a huge number of questions. Um, and I guess th- I guess for those of us who grew up outside the church, like me, I mean, I, I'm often grateful that I was spared the children's Bible and all of that sort of stuff, because I, I think I think that sort of pushes a simplistic reading onto the scriptures. Whereas, you know, stories like Noah's Ark need a lot of wrestling to get some value out of them. I mean, those many of the stories in the Old Testament, particularly, just fill me with dread, and and I think the, I think they represent the fact that people are wrestling with where God fits into into nasty events, and some some of the some of the people in some of the writers come down on the side of God's in control of everything, and so if there's a flood, God sent it, um, which. You know, is still seen in in modern days when there's an earthquake. There's always some pastor that's prepared to stand up and say God sent this earthquake, tsunami, stroke, bushfire because of something that someone did. You know, passed an abortion law or uh, proves of gay marriage or something like that. So that theology is still there. But there's just as many parts of the Bible that say God doesn't act in that way. And the scriptures wrestle with what does it mean for God to be in control and is God in control? And I think once we get into that wrestling, the stories can become a gift because they actually encourage us to wrestle. But just to read um, the story in that sort of linear, literalist way, and because it ends with a rainbow, everyone goes, "Ah, that's beautiful." I mean, I think the kid was on the money. It's a horrendous. <laughs> it is a horrendous story. God saying, "Well, here we go. I'm going to flood." You know, I, 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 you know, I repent of having created human beings. I mean, what? I mean, how do we? You know, here we are trying to sell the idea that God loves us to bits uh, unconditionally. We try to use the word grace, which means that there's an overspilling of God's love that can't be contained, and then we have this story in the background saying, "Yeah, but if you if you're really bad, God at least has a desire to drown you." And and the only reason God mightn't get around to drowning you is that it, God said last time that God did it, it wasn't going to happen again. I mean, that's. That really isn't much comfort because then you just come up with the idea, well, God's not going to drown us, but come the end of time, we're going to fry. I mean, you know, mm. it's it's horrendous stuff and needs to be uh, 
labelled as horrendous rather than, oh, this is a sweet story from the Bible. I mean, you know, someone gave my son when he was young um, uh, a Samson doll, complete with jawbone and action figure arm, <laughs> so that you could run around, you know, mimic running around, sort of cleaving everyone to death. I mean, you know. The, the doll quietly disappeared. But, you know, there was, there it was, a Christian action figure. I bought in a Christian bookstore and someone thought it was a great idea to give it to a kid. Well, I mean, another of these texts of terror uh, involves Abraham nearly sacrificing his own son. And it, uh, that, that was a similar one that was uh, preached to me in kids' church as, isn't God great that God sent an animal instead to be sacrificed? Um, and I, I remember going home crying, thinking God might ask my dad to kill me one day. Um, there is a lot of this this wrath of God in the Old Testament, even in parts of the New Testament. There is there's this understanding of God of, of vengeful, of hateful. Greg, what do, we, what do we do with these texts of terror? How, for, for some people who maybe have just accepted them, as as truth for so long how do you actually deal with these texts of terror and make them make sense with the the understanding that god is loving first off i don't well you can't do it in a sermon unless it's a very long complex sermon so i think the the there need to be places in the life of the church where people can sit together in small groups and wrestle together with these texts um We've developed the pattern at Byron Bay where I am at the moment that on Wednesday morning we gather for an hour, hour and a half, you know, a half a dozen, ten people, and we look at next Sunday's readings. It's a great way of doing some sermon preparation, but it means those people are also wrestling with me about the text. So we looked at that story a few weeks ago of Abraham and the uh, so-called offering of Isaac or bind, um, the binding of Isaac. And that there are so many troubling things, like not only is God apparently the kind of entity who would make such a demand and knows what he's doing. Take your son, your only son, your beloved son. I mean, it's really working in the story. But Abraham, this great figure of faith, actually believes God would make such a request. So it's a doubly horrific. And of course, Sarah is not even consulted, of course. She's just a woman. So you get all these different perspectives. Um, and we've, and I think we've just got to be able to, we've got to be able to say in effect, not in my name and not in God's name. That bit of the Bible is unholy. That bit of the Bible is unworthy of the God we see in Jesus. And that's not relativizing the Jewish tradition against the Christian tradition, because Jesus wasn't a Christian. He was a Jew. Still is, I guess, technically. So... Um, so we have to be able to stand back and just like Job is angry at God and dares God to show up and sort this out, uh, we have permission from the scriptures to be angry with the scriptures and say, that is a sick story. It does not speak of life. It does not speak of God. The story is a fascinating one. One thing that always stands out to me is Abraham never says, how do I do that, God? I think we've got to understand there's the context again because in his time, 
that child sacrifice was a thing. Clearly, this was not a surprising thought. And we're looking at how do these people interpret? What do they think God would want of them? And what's, you know, they clearly, it's a transactional idea. You have to give God something in order to be blessed. You know, you've got to, And what's the most precious thing you have? You have your son. And so in, in their, that style of thinking, when you look at the context of the times, for the people who are recording these stories, this was the expectation of the gods, you know, that that might be what they demand. And yet, I guess the only thing I'd draw from that story is that, that Abraham, you know, he comes down the mountain with Isaac alive. And, and, and that's, that's telling a different story to what, what was expected of the gods or what the, the, of a demanding god is telling a, a very different story of who this god could be as they are beginning to reimagine their relationship with this god. Except I think that's domesticating the story, letting God off the hook and letting the Bible off the hook. This is a bloody awful story. And if I wanted to use it, I checked this with one of my congregation who's a school principal. If I suggested to him in advance that I was going to use that story with the kids in the primary school for RE, he would not give me permission to use it. So the, yeah, so I, I have to protest that story. I can't, I can't rescue it by finding some spiritual insight it's just a bit of the story which is deeply ugly so do you think there are some passages which after doing some wrestling with you should you should perhaps not dismiss but should say um, absolutely dismiss a- absolutely I'm, dismiss. I'm no, no hesitate some bits of the bible the only thing we can do as people of god is to reject them it doesn't mean we take them out of the bible we leave every nasty bit in there because that's the bible reflects us because we wrote it not god and it has good stuff and bad stuff. And they didn't write it. I mean, many bits of the Bible are written for uh, dark um, political purposes to, um, to consolidate power over the community. And we've spiritualized them and rescued them hundreds of years later. But the origins of the text are not necessarily honorable. But they have become our sacred text. What do you say then, Greg, of the criticism that that's just making the Bible palatable? I'm not making it palatable. I'm recognizing that it's unpalatable. I don't spit it out and say, I'm not going to have that bit, thank you. (laughs) Um, I still read it in church, but we started, we actually moved the sermon up directly after the reading and said, that is such a gross reading. Mm. We can't just go on to the psalm and the New Testament reading and the gradual hymn and by hopefully you've forgotten that reading by the time we get to the gospel, <laughs> Wua, let's stop and talk about that now mm. before we go on with the liturgy. So, so is it then important not just to get out of the, the mindset that the Bible has to be infallible, but actually initially <laughs> accept that the Bible is inherently fallible? Exactly. What, where's this idea that the Bible must be infallible? Even in the second century, people like Ignatius said, don't talk to me about the written text, the written word. I want the living word of the oral tradition because documents, first set, second century, 115, documents get falsified. I want the living testimony of the oral tradition. We're 100 years after Easter, the church is suspicious of people who appeal to Scripture. We forgot that somewhere along the way. So, so perhaps then it's, um, I, I guess, a, a difficult question some people might have is when I am reading the Bible, how do I know which bits to embrace, which bits will be life-giving, which, which bits will help and which bits will hinder? Um, 
and I actually, this is something you suggested we might do, Greg, and I, I quite like the idea of going uh, among the three of you and asking what your what passage you think is the best in the Bible and what passage you think is perhaps the worst. And I imagine we might have already covered off a few that could be contenders for the worst. Um, well, I'd start with you, Sue. What, what do you think the best and the worst passages in the Bible are in terms of life enhancing against toxicity? Yeah, oh, look, I had so many options for, for best, of course, because there's so much there. You know, I, I thought about John 1 in the beginning. There was the Word and Word was with God. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. There's so much that's um, that you can just go through life with. But I decided to go to Paul because um, sometimes Paul is attributed both the best and the worst often falsely because he didn't actually write some of what they're attributing to him. But I, I can't, um, and, and there was a lot to choose from, but I ended up plumping thinking about Romans. I love the, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution? There's this big long list. And then he says, um, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced, and everyone will know this one, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that one to me, you know, because it's the absoluteness of it. Life is complex. Life is so confusing. There are so many things for people that they worry um, that they've gone beyond the pale. There's things that um, there is no redemption. There is no reclaim. And that says so completely that through the love of God in, in Christ, um, we are always, Christ is always with us. And I guess, you know, I mean, you go from the sublime to, to not so sublime. <laughs> um, there's a verse in, I mean, Paul, Paul didn't write Tim, the Timothy letters. But th- there's quite a number in those that, that I struggle with. But f- as a woman, this one, this one hits the bag of, of, of my worst. This is um, 1 Timothy 2. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach. Rather, she's remained to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and it's so interesting when you, you go from the life enhancing to the to mm. toxicity and you can see uh, instantly what you're talking about there, Greg, and that, that some verses are just damaging, but then hidden amongst them are these incredibly life-giving ones. Um, what about you? Maybe start with the toxicity one. Let's, let's end yeah. on a... <laughs> More optimistic now. Um, well, the the one that I, I my head went first of all to Jephthah's daughter, uh, which is a story of a, a perhaps a, a teenage daughter who is going to be sacrificed by her father. It is sacrificed by her father because of a rash promise he made. And it's a horrific story. We would rarely read that one in church. The lecturing committee has censored it out. You only get it in evening prayer or morning prayer, whatever. So again, there's a, even the church has a process of censoring the really gross bits. But for me, probably, the, because people hear it, the most horrific story for me, if it's not the story of the cross, as normally understood, it would be the story of, of the Akadar of Isaac, the, the Genesis 22, mm. because it, it validates religious violence as an attribute of God, which is what the cross has commonly under, misunderstood is doing as well. So for me, it's that religious violence, sacred violence, is is a text of terror. And what about the the most life enhancing? 
I'd, I'd, I'd started out with things like Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes, you know, the sort of summary in Micah, mm-hmm. what does the Lord require of you? But I've, that actually the one for me that is most life-giving is the burning bush moment mm-hmm. where in that story, God says, normally translated, I am who I am, but I prefer perhaps a more accurate translation of the Hebrew, I will be what I will be. Mm-hmm. Don't pin me down. And that's an invitation into the dynamic mystery of life rather than into certitude. Mm. So for me, that's the, that's the big one, I think. Peter, most toxic. Most toxic. I went to exactly the same scripture that uh, Greg went to, Jephthah's daughter. I think it's one of the worst stories in the Bible um, amongst a lot of really bad stories in the Bible. Um, so, and... and for me, it is, is also it is also the the cross and the way it gets read as God requiring you know, Anselm's idea that God required this as a payment. Um, I think that is that that whole understanding of God is just so destructive. Um, so the sacred violence idea, um, I would also support as being where the Bible gets the most gets perpetuates toxicity because uh, it helps us confuse love with violence and I mm. think there's a lot of there's a lot of confusion b- between about love and violence that's leading us into all sorts of troubles in terms of child rearing and relationships um, you know, domestic violence is is created through and 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 supported through that misunderstanding and confusion of uh, love and violence. And what about the most life-giving? The most life-giving one for me uh, comes from one of the letters of John, uh, which is simply, God is love, and those who love live in God, and God lives in them. It sets us completely outside any requirement to be inside the faith, inside the church, to be... Yeah, the, the God is actually God does what God will do, and that people who love reflect the divine nature. And it doesn't matter who they are, what tradition they belong to. Um, it just breaks down all the boxes. Yeah, I love that, um, Greg. I, I do want to throw one quick one at you. Um, it might not be quick. We'll see how it, how it unfolds. Um, Jesus saying, "I've not come to replace the law, but to fulfil the law." is often something uh, quoted as, as uh, I guess, a warning against dismissing the Old Testament. Uh, at least that's been my experience of it. What's your reading of that? Okay. Well, I think you mean the bit of Matthew five seventeen where he says, um, "Not I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Not one jot and not one tittle will be removed, but all will be fulfilled. Mm. That's the bit that's used about not changing anything. Well, for starters, that's Matthew, not Jesus. Okay, now it doesn't matter because it's biblical. Mm. It's in the Bible, but it's not a teaching of Jesus. It's a it's a more uh, sort of rabbinic spin on Jesus, written in a very uh, Jewish Christian community um, in Syria. You know, ten years either side of um, 100 AD kind of thing, where the church is in a context where they're trying to work out how does what we experience of God in Jesus connect with what we experience of God in Torah. And they haven't got the answer right, but but what Matthew is saying there is, well, the answer is not to get rid of the Old Testament. You need both. 
Now, that was actually a live issue in that part of the world, early part of the second century, when Matthew is probably finished off, because you're just after the Jewish revolt, about 20, 30 years after the end of the Jewish revolt. You're just about to go into another second Jewish revolt, 115, 117. And then you've got the third Jewish revolt, the Bar Kokhba rebellion, 132, 135. Christians had to decide in a real world context, how Jewish are we? Because this is the part of the world where it's all happening. This is where the taxes are going up to pay for the Roman armies to go and fight the Jews. And that's when you get people like Marcion emerging and saying, get rid of the Old Testament. Get rid of any trace of Judaism in Christianity. Matthew 5 is a Bethean tradition saying, Wua, don't throw out the old. Even though the same chapter says, you've heard it said of old, but I say unto you, which is in fact subverting the Old Testament. So it's, it's a bit more complex than just ah, that verse taken out of context means don't touch the Bible. Every part of the Bible is sacred. The bad bits along with the good bits. Religion is not just for the nice bits. Religion is for whole of life, the dark bits as well as the bright bits. So it is true, and there's a dilemma. Um, the Bible has to work for the average person who opens it up and looks for wisdom, and it often does. And that's, the, that's why the Gideon Bible Distribution Project is not entirely bad, because there's the occasional person for whom that's a life-changing moment. When some verse out of context with no historical background opens them up to the mystery of God. Great stuff. Whether it's a good project, whole other conversation. But the Bible is also used to reinforce prejudice and privilege and violence. And that's always wrong. So somewhere between those two extremes or those two positions, um, I'm called as a Bible scholar and as a priest to be help people use the Bible more autonomously and more with more insight without making them dependent on my scholarship or anybody else's scholarship but without reinforcing the idea that you can pick a verse out of the bible verse box and that's all you need for today so sue when people pick up the bible what a what's a good way to start reading it there's lots of places to begin i I think a core point just picking up on what greg was saying then though is to begin by going you know is this making me um, does this lead me to love more? Does you know that we still have conscience? You know, we still God has given us through the Spirit and through community. We have an understanding of when things are damaging, harmful, violent, and we have a responsibility. And that is where the danger of a literal, where you hold the Bible up as an authority in that way. Um, people use it to override conscience. For instance, people read Proverbs and think it's okay, they should beat their children even when they will describe being tearful as they were doing it. You know, they are overriding their conscience because they're putting the Bible up as authority. You know, when, when pastors send women back to violent marriages, you know, they are overriding their conscience. You know, they, when, when we use texts that actually seem to, you know, support genocide, you know, in, in acts of war, you know, that's an extreme example, but then, then we're overriding conscience. We have to say, is it making us more loving? And, and my best example of, of this, I think there was an experiment in the 1960s by a guy named Stanley Milgram. He was investigating um, how people committed atrocities in the Second World War, um, and, and he picked up on examples in the Nuremberg trials where people just said, what, you know, this is what I was told to do. And so basically it involved people um, having a group of participants and they didn't realise it was a setup. So they had a, a learner and a teacher 
and the learner was actually an actor, but the teachers didn't know that. And the teachers were told they had to keep asking questions, and every time the learner got something wrong, they would administer an electric shock. And, and this test proved exactly what they'd found in the Nuremberg trials, that people, because this man was, said he was a scientist and he was wearing a white lab coat, people over, I think it was 75% or somewhere around there, or 65%, administered up to 450 volts, or so they thought, while listening in the other room, the actor was screaming away when they were getting the answers wrong. And so they were listening to the screams of another human being and continuing, because the scientist said, you've got to continue, continuing to administer these electric shocks. And I think that's a real lesson in how when we use the Bible like that, and we, we use the Bible as the scientist in the lab coat mm. and say and override what we know is not loving, that is violent, that is harmful and degrading to human dignity, you know, then we're getting it wrong and we're not acting in alignment with the spirit of God given to us. Just to, to wrap up then, Peter, so when you say you engage with these texts, you wrestle with these texts, you, you see what these texts have to say, what are the questions you're asking? Perhaps a better question. Yeah. What are the questions worth asking? There are lots of questions. Well, as many questions as one can think of, I think. Um, certainly one is is uh, a question about context. So who wrote this, where, when, what was going on for them that they wrote it? Um, you know, as Greg said, you know, Matthew's community had a particular story and so they responded in a particular way. That's true for every writer. So to ask those sort of questions, to try and get into the skin of the person who wrote it. Um, also, one of the, my key questions is, so where is, where is the life-giving word? How can one discover a life-giving word by looking into and through this text? And also just the basic questions of the, the, sort of the African Bible study technique of uh, what, as I read this, what really strikes me, how does it touch my life? So I contextualize it back to myself and what does it invite me to do? And so the invitation might be to resist a particular interpretation or a particular understanding or, an ex or, even the or just resist acceptance of the text. And so those sort of questions that mean that one is engaged and wrestling, and if at all possible, to engage with some form of community. So sometimes the community that I engage with when I'm preparing sermons uh, are my colleagues. Sometimes it's uh, books written by other people, but they, you know, they, they become dialogue partners. And in these days with great web resources and stuff like that you can uh, get into blogs and, but really wrestle it I think first and foremost find a community to wrestle with the scriptures because the Bible is really the product of a community and it is also producing the community so it's a constant dialogue between community and scripture and I think that that obviously comes back to your Bible six-pack Greg which I think uh I might get up on a poster somewhere and put in my, my room. I quite like that idea. Well, thank you so much for the conversation, guys. It's been uh, very enlightening um, as always. And uh, we'll be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast soon.